Welcome to The Thing About Austin, a podcast about Jane Austen's world. I'm Zan. And I'm Diane. And this episode, we're talking about Lady Bertram's flower gardens. We are very excited to introduce our guest, Dr. Menglu Gao. Menglu Gao is an assistant professor in Victorian literature at the University of Denver. She specializes in 19th century British and Anglophone literature with research interests in medical humanities and empire studies. Her current book project examines how medical theories relevant to opium use and addiction provided new ways for 19th century authors to imagine the structure of empire. The book focuses on De Quincey, Dickens, Wilde, and other authors, as well as 19th century physicians and political theorists. She's now working on an article on plants, cultivation, and colonial agency. Welcome, Menglu. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, we're delighted to have you. And today we're going to be talking about Mansfield Park. So to set the scene, Julia and Edmund have just returned from an evening at the Parsonage with the Grants and the Crawfords. They walk into the drawing room to find Mariah, Aunt Norris, Lady Bertram, and Fanny caught up in quiet pursuits. Okay, but Lady Bertram is straight up napping at this point. <laughs> but Edmund asks after Fanny's health and finds she has a headache after being active in the heat that afternoon. So after he inquires, this is from, this is from the book. Yes, indeed, Edmund, added her ladyship who had been thoroughly awakened by Mrs. Norris's sharp reprimand to Fanny, I was out above an hour. I sat three quarters of an hour in the flower garden while Fanny cut the roses. And very pleasant it was, I assure you, but very hot. It was shady enough in the alcove, but I declare I quite dreaded the coming home again. Fanny has been cutting roses, has she? Yes, and I'm afraid they will be the last this year. Poor thing, she found it hot enough but they were full, so full-blown that one could not wait. Menglu, as a novel, Mansell Park has a strong interest in landscape and particularly with gardens. In this passage, we're told that Lady Bertram, Aunt Norris, and Fanny have spent their time specifically in a cultivated flower garden. Can you tell us a little bit more about what distinguishes this flower garden from the broader conception of gardens in the novel or Austen's other works? Yes. Um, so if we think about gardens in general, at the time Austen was writing, the idea of the garden suggested a specific relationship between human beings and nature. First of all, Austen's time was categorized by the enclosure of common lands. So in this context, a garden was usually an enclosed piece of ornamental ground. So it was a private space, although it was not really completely an inner space in any state because people could sometimes see the garden outside its entrance. For example, people may remember that in Mansfield Park, when people are visiting Mr. Rashford's house south of Chen, there's a garden locked by an iron gate but it doesn't mean that people cannot see the garden from the outside, right? So at the same time, a garden at Austin's time was used to exhibit natural beauty or a kind of pastoral ideal 
but it always needed a lot of artificial interventions, such as landscape design and maintenance. And this is true not just in the Regency context, but also, uh, I guess, in today's world. And in Mansfield Park, we see a lot of discussions of uh, improvers, improvements, mm-hmm. and also gardening. Mm-hmm. So uh, what differentiates the flower garden from the broader conception of gardens is obviously what is chosen to be planted. Gardens can have flowers, but they can also have trees, grass, or even fruit and vegetables. So gardens are mainly for pleasure rather than for needs or interests. But they can sometimes provide a little bit of food for the owners. So a flower garden like gardens in general is a combination of artificiality and naturalness because it is both organic and constructed. But different from a general garden, it specifically serves at an exhibition of a variety of flowers, colors, and smells. Well, and the way that you're describing that, it's making me realize, obviously, that it's a garden like this is, is pure luxury, you know, where, where functional gardens, obviously, but a rose garden is just pure, a flower garden is pure luxury. Yeah. Well, so, so you mentioned, you mentioned that these are, you know, very cultivated spaces. And so the flower gardens, like the ones here at Mansfield Park, are likely full of commercial plants that have been specifically purchased and transplanted for these kinds of estates. We know that roses are central to this scene with Fanny picking them. But are there other flower types that we would expect to find in this kind of garden? And what are these commercial transplants supposed to maybe signal about the garden's owners? Yeah, so it is common for this kind of gardens to have uh, other types of flowers. For example, a typical flower garden often have bonums, sweet briars, which um, are kind of wild roses. They might also have lilacs, daisies, and cornflowers. So these plants were like typical and accessible in England at Austin's time. We might also expect to find some so-called exotic flowers, especially starting from the 1810s or the 1820s, because British botanists were collecting or smuggling plants from all over the world. We know that people in the 19th century started to use the sealed glass container called the wooden case to better transport plants between different continents. So having more foreign flowers became possible at that time. And as we can imagine, these foreign flowers could be extremely expensive. Mm, right. uh, for example, in London, new kinds of orchids were often sold at auction, and they could even cost thousands of pounds. Wow. So it is very likely for such a flower garden to have a bunch of flower types alongside British imperial expansion. So uh, in terms of what these commercial transplants are supposed to signal about the garden's owners, the transplants definitely suggest that the garden's owners are rich, uh, they are a la mode because they have these trendy flowers, their garden is cosmopolitan, or Mm -hmm. they can hire great gardeners to take care of their expensive plants, right? But a more important element here, I think, is not just having these plants, but how the transplants are arranged or how the owners use these plants to contribute to the improvements of the garden. 
we don't know much about like different kinds of transplants in Mansfield Park, but improving gardens is uh, frequently mentioned in a novel, and it is also a fashion among the upper class in a novel. We know, for example, that Mr. Rashworth becomes very eager to improving his garden <laughs> once he sees a newly improved garden of his friend. So there's also a sense of snobbery in this, and this praise for improvements is not just an indicator of affluence, but sometimes also tell us something about the owner's taste. And something interesting about the taste is that we find the characters in Mansfield Park prefer gardens that look natural. And even Henry Crawford sees what he calls the natural advantages of the ground, and he doesn't think these natural features should be changed drastically in the improvements. This is perhaps also Austin's own taste under the influence of the British artist William Gilpin, as well as some other artists right. and landscape designers in the late, late 18th and early 19th centuries. They believe that artificial interventions are needed in landscape design, but uh, these interventions are supposed to add more natural elements, such as roughness and irregularity to the garden. So we definitely see the contradictions in this taste or in this idea, because they believe that the garden needs to have commercial transplants and other artificial interventions. But all, all these plants and all these interventions are to make the garden more natural. And what the word natural here means is also problematic. For example, William Chambers, who is an 18th century architect based in London, talks about gardens' aesthetics in a very interesting way. He says that gardens are to be natural without resemblance to vulgar nature. So they should be natural, but not too natural. <laughs> but not too natural. And, yeah, and that's a taste at Austin's time. So I, I can think of like a similar example. We not only see this kind of taste in Men's Book Park, but in other novels by Austin. For example, in Pride and Prejudice, Elizabeth's observation of Pemberley also focuses on its naturalness. He right. notices that the estate has a natural stream and have the quote from the text saying that a stream of some natural importance was spout into greater, but without any artificial appearance, its banks were neither formal nor falsely adorned. She had never seen a place for which nature had done more or where natural beauty had been so little counteracted by an awkward taste. So it is exactly this specific taste in a garden that makes Elizabeth feel that to be mistress of Pemberley might be something, right? So the garden really, right. or the flower garden really tells us something about its owner. Yeah, it's like, it's like rustic, but you know, the edges have been smoothed down, you know? <laughs> it's like rustic and polished at the same time. Yeah, it's a balance between artificiality mm -hmm. and naturalness. And it's a difficult balance. It's making me think about people who have that kind of studied casualness about the way they dress. You know, everything mm. seems really simple and it's not over the top. But you also know that everything that they're wearing costs like $500. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like that. It's that kind of thing. I love that you're pointing out how much contradiction is in, like, there's no real right way to garden here, except for 
make it make it expensive, I think is almost kind of what we're what we're saying here, where it's like have some wilderness, but pay a lot of gardeners a lot of money to maintain mm-hmm. it. <laughs> <laughs> so these gardens also seem to be largely the purview of women, you know, specifically when we're talking about these more confined flower gardens, not the large estates, you know, obviously we've got Henry Crawford and Rushworth and all the men talking about improvements to the broader estate, but specifically with the gardens, that seems to be for the ladies, as it were, and not necessarily in terms of heavy planting and the more strenuous work, at least in the case of Lady Bertram, she would never, (laughs) but certainly in terms of design and also a place to spend time and, you know, doing a little bit of lighter work, like some cutting and some trimming and some gathering of the blooms, Uh that sort of thing. Yeah. So can you talk to us a little bit more about these spaces in terms of their gendered usage? So yes, I I would agree that gardens are really spaces for women. We see uh, in a novel that female characters often take a walk while chatting with their companions in a garden. That's where a lot of dialogues in a novel are taking place, right? So in that sense, a garden is a place for women to socialize and also to get close to nature especially because they are mostly limited to domesticity. So it could be said that the gardens expand domestic spaces for women. But I think there's also the other side of the story. Something interesting in the novel is that Austin makes the garden or this expanded domestic space as a metaphor for danger and temptation that women might encounter. There's a famous scene of Mariah crossing the haha, the, the boundary, to enter a garden at Southerton together with Henry. And that foreshadows her elopement by the end of the novel. Right. The garden border uh, in the scene, according to Maria, gives her a feeling of restraint. And this image is parallel to the restraint she later feels about her marriage. So that being said, um, I think a garden could symbolize both possibilities and repression for women if we think about its gender usage. Mm -hmm. Um, And another interesting thing is that improvements of gardens in the Regency context sometimes served as metaphorical political improvements and systemic reforms. So the garden especially, its connection with women also has some political connotations in this context. Well, and, I, and I think because the fact that, that when Mariah has that moment, it's interesting that it's a man-made and imposed, mm-hmm. right? Where, whereas like a lot of the other gardens, especially in the domestic kind of setting, are, are surrounded by more like hedges. So it's more of a natural boundary, whereas, whereas that particular crisis for Mariah is definitely in a man-made structure that she's particularly frustrated with. So th- I, th- I think that that really makes that right. social commentary stand out really well. Yeah, and the landscape designers at that time uh, also called the vulgar nature in a garden something uh, feminine. Hmm. But like the intervention people are making in a garden are presented as something masculine. So it's kind of like masculine intervention in this feminine garden and the feminine nature. I just, I would have never 
have thought to describe a garden as vulgar and (laughs) I just really enjoyed that as like a particularly like what a set down you know your garden is so vulgar but it's interesting right that there's this idea of like oh if you've if you've let the garden kind of grow wild that lack of restraint is is decidedly feminine I mean hello patriarchy (laughs) it's just very overt there (laughs) And that kind of idea of, of kind of upkeep and and being active in the garden as kind of a place of industry is also interesting for, for women. Mm. So this scene in Mansfield Park particularly emphasizes Fanny's labor. You know, her aunts have told her to cut the roses. They're nearly overblown. So why do you think Austin includes this scene? Yeah, so the scene is really interesting. And let's look at that. First of all, like something interesting is that Austin doesn't directly show how Fanny or other people work in the flower garden. And we only see Fanny's labor through other characters' discussion of her labor. And we know that Sir Thomas's business in Antigua in the novel is exactly sugar plantations, which Austin also does not directly describe. So what I think um, is interesting in this scene is that Austin somehow shows the details uh, of Fanny's labor. Um, she tells us that there are a few steps Fanny completes one by one. She cuts the roses, she gathers them, she walks across the hot pot, and she puts the roses in the spare room to dry. So Fanny obviously does not pick roses for pleasure. If, As we talk about the garden is for pleasure, she is instead harvesting and processing the roses. And she treats them almost as agricultural products in a systemic process. And we can see something similar in representations of uh, British India regarding how laborers harvest poppies in opium fields and how they uh, lay out opium in a factory. Kind of suggests Mansfield's connection with the colonies. And it also makes us, makes us to wonder what hidden stories are supporting Sir Thomas's estate and its gardens. And without these hidden stories, Noah's plot, as well as the center of the British Empire, would be very, very different. And the flower garden here is just a part of the picture. Right. Yeah. Menglu, is there anything else about flower gardens, the wilderness, anything else that you'd like to share with us before we wrap up today? I cannot think of anything else, but I think the name of wilderness is really interesting because it, it seems to suggest that like this place is the, the, the very organic place, right? Like human beings are not really cultivating this place, but actually you have to hire a lot of designers to design the garden, which is called wilderness. <laughs> and it's used to present um, like a kind of wilderness to you, but it's actually a garden. It's a very expensive garden. Yeah, I, I would love to have somebody just come over and design a faux wilderness for me. What, what could be better? <laughs> a vulgar a fa- wilderness. <laughs> a vulgar wilderness. And I would also very much like to have some faux ruins purposely made to look like they've been there for a long time. It was really like the original shabby chic, now that I think about it. Mm. (laughs) Well, it's just, it's just, it's amazing how much artifice goes into making it try to seem 
organic when it's organic to begin with. It's just, it's very in keeping, I think, with the mindset of 18th century England, where it's like, improvements. Yes, we've got lots of improvements to do. And it's like, are you really just messing with the original? I'm pretty sure that's what's going on here. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Where can our listeners follow you online or learn more about your work? Um, So people can also find me and my work on Academia EDU. Excellent. And we're looking forward to your future book. Thank you. So thank you again, Meng Lu. It's been an absolute delight to chat with you. My pleasure. Thank you both. Thank you again to Dr. Meng Lu Gao for joining us for today's discussion. You can find us on Instagram at The Thing About Austin and on Twitter at Austin underscore things. You can also check out our website, thethingaboutaustin.com, and email us at thethingaboutaustin at gmail.com. And stay tuned for our next episode, where we'll be talking about bath and its baths. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.